0: Welcome to my Big Safety Challenge, a podcast all about stories of safety leadership presented by Dale Carnegie and the Board of Certified Safety Professionals.
1: So Tiffany, a few years ago, Southwest Airlines ran a certain advertisement campaign that every seat has a story. The idea was every place on the airplane, the the people sat there and they were gone the plane for a particular reason. And I find that True with these guests that we meet when we talk to them, every person has a story, every person has a background that makes it good.
2: It does, and the stories are bigger than just safety, that's just part of the story and part of the journey. So it's always great to understand where people are starting from and meeting them where they are. So,
1: and we've always found that you know it's like most people want to tell their story most people want to talk they just need somebody to ask them a question mm-hmm. and then to listen so that's what that's what makes what we get to do fun and enjoyable do something like that
2: absolutely so let's get our next story started good so we're going to be talking to Montrice Sampson who is the vice president of human resources for CBS News welcome Montrice. Hello. We're so glad to have you. Thank you and for inviting me. So let's get started. Tell us a little bit about what you do for CBS News. So I'm
3: the vice president for Um, CBS News for Global News and Operations, and I provide HR support, generalist support. And by that, I mean I cover many different facets of human resources, whether it's labor relations, employer relations, policies and procedures, benefits. Um, It runs the gamut of questions that you could get on any given day from anyone as you're trying to support a team of um, about 1,300 individuals. The employees that I'm supporting and the leaders that I am supporting are spaced out across the U.S. And then the global responsibility is for all of our international operations on the news side. So we've got the London team, we've got South Africa, we've got Italy, we've got Germany, and we've got I'm trying to think. There's oh, China and Japan. And
2: you've been with CBS News how long?
3: I've been with CBS News for four years, and prior to that, I was with the Associated Press. And then prior to that, I've been in a, various industries, healthcare, cosmetics, federal government, auto dealerships. So I've kind of done some of everything.
1: So Montrese, I watch the news. I see somebody behind the anchor desk, you know, leading things. I see them, let's switch over to this correspondent and see what they've got to say. It never crosses my mind about those people having a need for safety, well being, so on like that. Am I missing the boat? Or you miss
3: the Yeah, I mean, I too was a consumer of news for years before I ever started working for news agencies. And I just listened to the news, never having having a full understanding of all that goes into getting that anchor, who you say is sitting behind the desk on air, getting them the stories and the content that they need to share with people. So I too was like you, I was just a consumer.
1: Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would see is the person on the Weather Channel who's out there in the hurricanes, <laughs> and he's getting blown over by the wind. And I think, yeah, that guy, we better check his safety. But, I mean, there's a lot more. I think this would be great that we can um, have you educate us on that. And also, as an HR person, you get the opportunity to guide safety. And what, what's that intersection like? How would you come to grips with that?
3: I'll I'll go to your first point. Yes, there are the people who are out covering the weather so everyone can see what others are experiencing. And that's one set of circumstances in which there are people where safety might come to mind. You also may think of those that are telling stories in war torn Mm -hmm. or hazardous areas or those that are out covering a protest or a riot. Those are other areas where there could be safety concerns or an active shooter. So there are various concerns um, for us to think about when we're sending our most important resource out to gather information, to feed back to members of the public across the globe to be able to see what's happening around them and to be informed. So, in all of those instances, we have an opportunity to think about safety and think about safety first, while pre- presenting quality information. And how does HR end up involved? It's many. It's many ways that we may end up involved. It could be that. We know that we have people that are launching to difficult situations. And one, we want to make sure they have all of the equipment and the resources they need to do their jobs effectively and safely. It could be that those that are not actually out in the field are doing some work, but they're feeding in information back to the people sitting in our facilities Mm. who have to take that information and turn it around into something else. And so there's a safety component there as well, making sure the facility is set up so they can do their their best work, but also making sure that depending on what the topical area is, there's support for them as they're ingesting all of the content that you see a, a snippet of on TV. Or reading about in the newspaper if we're thinking about the other side, the wire side or the print side of news.
1: So did you start your HR career with the intention of oh, I want to be involved in safety or did it just how'd you get how you make that connection for you personally?
3: I never thought um, when I started in the world of HR about safety. It wasn't something that was top of mind. Um, I had a job years ago in high school. It was a co-op job. And I worked with a safety officer. And so that's when I started thinking about the Mm -hmm. intersection of how that work comes together and then i saw people who were struggling because of work assignments that they had had and hr ended up involved as you're thinking about whether it's workers comp whether it's using the employee assistance programs or finding other resources to support our people and so that's when I first got to see kind of a connection. And then the more I worked in the real world, I said, you know, there's there's something missing here. Everybody's not thinking about this and doing some of this work. And people were being left kind of to struggle on their own to figure it out.
1: Well, personally, as in having been an HR professional for several years and also being involved in safety, I can certainly know the benefit. Of it. And I believe just the time that you're going to be with us today will really help just remind and enlighten even HR professionals of the great opportunity they have to invest in their people by helping them to stay safe and helping to establish that culture. So that's one of the reasons that we're we're really interested and delighted that you're here. And so I know there's a variety of safety challenges Mm -hmm. that you've had to face along the way, and we're going to talk about some of those. So let's let Tiffany kind of lead us into that discussion.
2: Absolutely. So I think at top of mind, right, COVID, I think we were all challenged. Everybody was <laughs> challenged, whether they had the a safety background or not, but we were all challenged in navigating the COVID waters and what to do and how to do it and when it should be done. So when you're thinking about the challenge of, of COVID that we encountered, can you tell some of the listeners on how human resources plays a pivotal role in the execution of a challenge like COVID, regardless of where that actually sits in the organization?
3: I think um, some of the first things that had to be done is was to understand the magnitude of what we were dealing with. Mm-hmm. No matter what news organization you were talking about, we have a duty to provide a service, and so we don't get to close. And it's thinking about how do you provide that service to people and keep your individual employees safe at the same time. So it was being able to work together with a cross-sectional team, a cross-disciplined team of individuals to figure that out first. What locations have been hit the hardest? What do we need to do? How do we have business continuity and move operations from a facility that may need to close to somewhere else? What resources can we bring into play? We need nurses, we need medical professionals to help guide us. This was something no one had dealt with. So helping figure out who do we need at the table so that we can have these conversations? And then how do we create policies on the fly to make sure that we can communicate to everyone what we know right now, what's our plan right now? And what are we going to be thinking in the short, the middle, and then the long term? Because we're still dealing with COVID. Yeah. Um, I know some people would like to think it's gone away, but it is not. Mm-hmm. And so once you set up your policies and your protocols, you've got to communicate them. You got to check in with the business to make sure that they work and that they can be done in a, in a satisfactory way so that you still have quality products. Again, safety first of mine, but you still need a quality product. And then you have to be able to kind of tweak. So you've got to be flexible and nimble enough to tweak the policies and protocols as you go along as things changed. And then it was also finding um, opportunities where I had some of my former colleagues coming going, okay, how are you guys doing it? What do we need to be thinking about? And understanding what's a mandate versus here's a recommendation mm-hmm. and being able to help suss out the difference between the two.
1: If you could give a couple of just general overall guidelines to people as they're facing things they didn't expect, what kind of advice would you give?
3: I think you first have to be willing to to, to accept the fact that you are not always going to be the subject matter expert. You're not always going to have all the answers and you're going to have to do some research and bring in some coalition of friends to help you figure out what we need to get done. So it's being able to recognize I don't have all the answers, but I know where to go get some resources to help me with it and be humble enough to do that. You've got to be willing to make decisions once you have information. Sometimes you don't have the luxury of time and we didn't with covid. And so once we had information, we had to be able to execute decisions. And then you've got to be willing to communicate. You can't be afraid to have difficult conversations or to be the person that says, hold on one second here. (laughs) We got to think this through. If we do X, here's the possible ramification for that. Or have we thought enough about this? So you've got to be willing to have a voice and use that for the greater good. So you can't be afraid to speak up.
1: Well, and one of the Carnegie principles that we talk about often is you have to be able to appeal to the nobler motive, to mm-hmm. sometimes guide a group of people. You have to take them up to elevate their look a little bit more than just what's right here right now, but to go a little bit yes. higher for what's more noble. And that can help yes. be a guideline for that. Now, there was a story about some um, CPR training that, was, that needed to take place, and there were some challenges with that could you tell us a little bit about that story
3: oh I can talk a little bit about that story it was at a prior employer we had been talking about safety and putting business continuity plans into place and thinking through what does a business continuity plan look like what do we need to consider and some of the things are what happens if something happens not just out in the field but what if something happens here inside of our workspace As well as out in the field, because we've got people everywhere doing various things. And so we started talking about what are some of the basic lower hanging things that we could be working on to add value to the organization. CPR and first aid was one of them that we Mm -hmm. were thinking about. And so getting the organization to understand why this cost investment was going to be helpful. So, after a a bit of round and round, we finally get the approval to do the CPR and first aid training. We do it and within two months, we had someone who actually had a heart attack at work and we had to actually put that training into play and they actually were able to save a person's life. Well, from that moment forward, we had people raising their hand left and right. People wanted to do safety and first aid and CPR training because they saw the value in it. Prior to, and God, you never really wanna have to use the skill, Mm. but to be able to demonstrate that because I had this training, I was able to save a colleague. I was able to do something that added value. It made that investment, that that small cost expense go up exponentially because now it was an investment. They got to see firsthand how putting the effort in for first aid, safety, and CPR paid off for someone. And that person still works at that organization and tells the story himself that mm. if it weren't for his colleagues and that knowledge, he probably wouldn't be here today.
1: Now, you were very tactful when you said the phrase, we went around and around. <laughs> Would you expand on that just a tad? We don't need names, but just what did the round and around look like?
3: Sometimes people can't understand the value of something. You know what? We haven't had it for this long and we've been just fine. And helping people understand we've been lucky. I wouldn't say we've been just fine. We've been lucky. And although we haven't had to use it, what is the value of a life? And if we were able to spend $50, $60, $70 to get some people trained, that's going to be far less than what the loss of life is going to cost to that person's family, Mm -hmm. to their colleagues, to the overall organization. And so helping to put it in a framework that they could understand that. Um, is what finally got us to a point where we were able to get the organization to agree that we would do a certain number of these trainings. Once we did that and we demonstrated, again, having had to use that skill and knowledge, well, then we started doing it all over the country, Mm. wanting to make sure that every facility had some number of people that were trained.
1: So Montrese, what if you had rolled over and said, eh, is this worth the fight? What if you'd done that? isn't that something that, well, how would you address to other <laughs> HR and safety professionals that face some of those challenges? Because it's going to happen. It happens over and over again.
3: Absolutely. It's going to happen. And I think we, as HR professionals and the coalition of friends that we build and EHS have to decide what are the hills we're, we're willing to die on, saving of someone's life, the possibility to save someone's life, is a hill I'm always going to be willing to die on. Hmm. So I think we have to decide what is going to be the cost if we don't act or if we don't speak up. So thinking sometimes what's the worst case scenario am I going to be okay if that's on my head?
1: And the other thing I would add is that at times the safety professional, the HR professional, sees things from listening to other situations, sees the vision of what could be the desired state that not everybody else sees, and so has to take and plant that vision or help pass that vision on to other people, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. exactly what you help to do.
3: And I think that's one of the things that organizations look to HR to do. They look to EHS to do these things. They just sometimes don't want to hear it. I think they intrinsically know it's the right thing to do, but sometimes they need someone to guide them to how to do it and how to do it effectively um and and with cost conscious because we've all got to be financially responsible but they're looking to us to help guide them to some of these things that i think intrinsically they know are right
1: so i think what i've heard you say there is they look to us to be the voice the voice that says this needs to be considered this this is the right thing and if we Mm -hmm. don't take that initiative then what needs to be may never happen and uh so Absolutely. we need to have that voice.
2: And sometimes those are difficult conversations to have, right? They're, they're not for the faint of heart, right? And so you have to be able to work in sometimes that level of uncomfortability in being able to have that difficult conversation, but not just be able to have the conversation for rhetoric purposes, but have the conversation where you can actually translate value. You can translate it from a cost-benefit perspective. And sometimes it's hard to understand that, especially when you are competing with P&L statements. But when you're able to translate value and create a coalition internally within the organization of friends and peers that say, yes, there is value in this and this is what the value looks like, then you get the attention of decision makers to be able to say, okay, yeah, let's move forward.
3: Absolutely. And I think you have to be able to not only have your voice, but know how to compromise as well. So, okay, what if I can't do first aid safety and CPR training for 100 people. Could we do 50 people? Absolutely. So you've also gotta know how to compromise and to bargain because sometimes we may not get everything that we're asking for, but if we can get some of it, I think we've we've had some success there as well when we can get it, some of it.
1: Do, do we as safety professionals sometimes Miss the boat because we think it's got to be all or nothing. Oh, absolutely! Oh, man, that was like insane <laughs> oh, oh, when yeah. y'all did that.
2: Absolutely, I have to. I mean, for you know, I exist in authenticity and transparency. And early in my career, especially existing and doing work in the state of California, you know, when I came out of college, everything was regulatory driven, and there were so many new regulations coming out from Cal OSHA, and it was this this mindset. Of oh well we have to do this as an organization well when you when it comes down to it an organization doesn't have to do anything now there will there be potential consequences and risk and exposures absolutely but then I had to create a higher level of emotional intelligence to look at it and be introspective to just to say if it's not all something
0: mm-hmm. works as
2: well and so I really appreciate that commentary, um, Montrese, about sometimes you're not going to get everything. And I think that is very uh, consistent with really good HR professionals, that they understand that piece of it.
3: Yeah, and I think people have to understand that we are partners. Mm -hmm. We are the business partners. EHS is a business partner, Mm -hmm. and we have to be willing to acknowledge that we are the partner. We're not the sole decision maker, and we have to be willing to operate in that space of partner as well.
1: Now, you just said something, Mm -hmm. Tiffany, and Montrese, I'd like to hear your comment of the importance of guiding in emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, HR professionals should have some expertise in that, but coming into the safety world, sometimes there's this, this drive toward regulations and drive toward rules. Montrese, how do you see that balance between those two of emotional intelligence and the regulations?
3: Yeah, uh, there are going to be some things where we can compromise. But if it has to do with the health of someone or life and death, there's really going to be no space to compromise in those instances. When we're sending people out to cover things and we say you've got to wear your PPE, there's no room for compromise there because I need to try to get you home to your family. So there are certain things that we're not going to be able to compromise on. If we're talking about, you know, whether you wear a red vest or a blue vest, okay, there's some wiggle room there. We can talk about those things. But if it's got to do with life um, and death, those are the areas where we can't compromise. And that's where the HR professional has got to be willing to use their voice and to stand firm. Um, and sometimes that does require us to put down kind of the hammer, but in these other spaces where we have opportunity to compromise and to, you know what, I'd love to hear from you. Why are you so opposed Mm -hmm. to this? What do you think you could live with? What could we do differently? That's part of that emotional intelligence and knowing how to get from no to a maybe to hopefully eventually a yes.
1: Well, that really goes along with another principle that Carnegie said, show respect for the other person's opinion. Mm-hmm. He was pretty blunt when he said never say you're wrong. Mm-hmm. So what we just heard you talk about is you try to listen and hear and show respect. And even if it's not right, you're trying to nudge a bit by bit to get them where you're going.
3: Mm. Absolutely. Even when we disagree, we do it with respect and civility. And understanding that someone has a different experience that they bring with them everywhere they go every day and their experience may not be mine, but I need to be able to hear it and then figure out how do we work through that or around that if necessary to get to something that could hopefully be mutually beneficial for both of
1: us. And that's a huge lesson when the emotions get rolling oh, too. Yes. And we get yes. cranked up oh, over it. <laughs>
3: absolutely. And you've got to know when to pull back. Sometimes you can force your your perspective, you can force your decision on someone but that's not necessarily in the long run gonna get you what you need. Mm -hmm. So you've gotta know when to pause and say, you know what, maybe we should, this feels a little bit charged right now. Maybe we should take a pause. Let's both walk away and think about it and let's come back together. So that emotional intelligence also causes you to know when you gotta stop pushing for a minute, regroup, re-strategize, and then come back together.
1: I'm kinda curious about this whole thing of dealing with journalists.
2: Yeah. Let's kind of unpack that a little bit because I think that's where Montrese and I have a sweet spot as far as really creating a practical solution. And if we're going to talk about the the health and safety of individuals who work in news gathering and news reporting, we'd be remiss if we weren't talking about their not just their physical safety montries as we mentioned you know ppe and being trained in cpr first aid and aed but also the psychological safety and the mental health that comes as a byproduct of individuals working specifically in news gathering and news reporting from your perspective as vice president of human resources specifically in in cbs news why do you see psychological safety and mental health as important, and it being different than the total rewards or HR conventional programs around employee assistance programs and things of that nature. How is this different and why is it important and different?
3: I think it's different because people bring their whole selves to work every day. They bring their experiences, they bring their traumas, they bring their joys, their pains, they bring everything to work with them every day. They can't just take it Mm -hmm. off at the door. Mm -hmm. And so creating a space where they can come and be able to acknowledge if something is hard. If I have certain things that are triggers for me and you're sending me out to cover a story that hits very close to home i have to be in a safe space to be able to say to my manager or to hr you know what i don't think that's the best assignment for me Mm -hmm. without divulging too much but i don't think that's the one for me or i think i've covered that story it hits so close to home i'm gonna need a minute I I just need to process. I need to regroup. I think also if we're covering stories, I mean, one of the biggest things that's going on in our country beyond the divisiveness of politics are mass shootings. Well, you can't look at the same type of difficult content over and over again and not have some sort of response to that, whether conscious or unconscious. And being able to create a space for people and provide resources to people to talk those things through are so necessary because just like you bring all of your experiences to work, you then take your work experiences home with you. And so it's kind of a circle. And so being able to create space for people to talk about what they need to talk about, be able to have coping mechanisms and be able to know how to leave it at the door, if necessary. Those things are critical. And that's why this mental health and this psychological safety and health are so important in not just the work we do, but I think in every organization, people need to be thinking about these things. Mm -hmm. It just so happens that we're telling some very difficult stories on a consistent basis. But I think this is an important component that all organizations should be looking
2: at. And you're absolutely right. And I think also is part of individuals that work in news, and I see it all, almost synonymous with um, law enforcement or fire departments. Generally, mm-hmm. if, for example, if you have a mass sh- school shooting, those three entities are on site first: police, fire, and journalists. And so when you're thinking about, you know, the traumas that occur within fire personnel and law enforcement, those same traumas are are existent amongst our, our news gathering and news reporting teams, and the resources that probably exist in fire and law enforcement do need to parlay into news gathering and news reporting. Do you think there's an acknowledgment that, yes, this is something that I'm um, dealing with and, and maybe it's generational. Maybe some people are acknowledging it and then different generations just feel like, oh, it's part of me doing my job and I'm gonna just push this to a side because I'm passionate and diligent about the job that I do. How do you contend within news now that you're having millennials and Gen Zs now populate into news gathering and reporting and it's not just baby boomers and Gen X anymore?
3: Yeah, I, I definitely think that we are doing better at raising the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, before it was about go get it done. Mm-hmm. And now, whether it's EHS, whether it's HR and the partnership that we're building together, we're starting to help employees and managers think differently it's not just about getting the story Mm -hmm. it's about how we're going to help the people once they've gotten the Mm -hmm. story or as they're trying to get the story Mm -hmm. and then there is definitely a generational component Um, millennials and gen z's are doing a far better job than other generations have ever done about talking about work-life balance Mm
2: -hmm.
3: and acknowledging when they're feeling overloaded or overwhelmed They don't feel the same need that, and I'm speaking in generalities here, but they don't seem to feel the same need that some of the other generations have felt to just push through. You know, you hear the stories, well, when I was coming up, you just had to deal. You just had to learn to make it work. Mm -hmm. You just figured it out. And they're saying, yeah, but look at what that's done to some of you. There's this trauma. There's this built up of, you know, unreleased trauma that you guys have had, and there's no work-life balance, and so you just work, work, work. And the newer generations, the younger generations are saying, that's not healthy. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: That's not healthy for us, and we don't want to work that way. And so from an HR perspective, we have to respect both perspectives, but we've got to have some avenues, some off-ramps for people to say, you know what? I don't think I need that help, but if it's there, I know where mm-hmm. to get it. For the other side, the, the, the newer generation say, "No, know what, I need that help and I need you to make sure it's there. So HR and EHS come together to make sure that we have resources that people can utilize and we don't make people feel bad for using or not using them. We're just making sure it's there, it's available and making sure that employees don't make each other feel bad Mm -hmm. for how they show up and how they respond because that's a very real thing too so making sure that there is value in both perspectives part of it is helping the managers know what do i say how do i just check on them without prying do i need to check on them and i've been having some of these conversations with leaders for years and i had a leader call me and say hey so and so's not doing really well i think they're struggling would you mind Well, first of all, I was delighted because the manager recognized it. Yes, they recognized it. And we've started to create these spaces where the employee felt comfortable enough talking to their manager. And then the manager felt comfortable enough and knew how to recognize what this person was asking for. And not only did they recognize it, they didn't chastise them, they didn't make them feel bad, and they didn't say, well, great, but go back out there and get the rest of the story, and then we'll deal with that later. They stopped, they paused, they were deliberate in their actions, and they picked up the phone and called me. It was around 9 or 10 at night. And that's the other thing. There's certain industries where you can't do HR nine to five. Some of the the, the industries that Tiffany spoke about, police, fire, hospital, news, you Mm -hmm. can't do it nine to five. So you've got to be willing to respond when your teams need you and when they call you. But this manager paused and recognized, took it seriously and reached out to me so that I could reach out to their person. That's what happens when you build that coalition and when you start to build that trust, Mm -hmm. when they know that you're going to walk with them, when they they know you're going to be there when they call you. Mm -hmm. And then you show up and you do exactly what you've told them to hold you accountable for, which is being there, providing resources and creating the space that they need. And then it's acknowledging those managers when they get it right. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for doing that. Mm -hmm. And when they misstep a little bit, Merrill, it's saying, hey, I understand this happened. Talk me through what you did. And then let's talk about maybe what we do differently next time.
1: Now, there's another principle that you just delved into there called praise the slightest improvement, praise every Mm -hmm. improvement. So when you saw somebody that did the right thing, even if they didn't do it quite perfect, but they took the step in the right direction, you praised them for it. You highlighted it, which Mm -hmm. let them know I'm on the right track. I need to keep doing that. And so oftentimes what we see in safety is we're waiting for everybody to do things just perfect.
2: Oh, my goodness. You are so – I mean, me just listening Mm -hmm. to you guys – we all need a little HR in us, good HR, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Say, say we're talking about HR in the intersection of HR and safety. That's it. But we, all, but that also parlays into safety people having some of these HR soft skills that are needed. They're essential skills. Uh, they're they so, are so essential. So essential, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. for the AEHS listeners. That is the critical part of it, is these, I mean, you know, I, I think the world of you, Montrese, and I think you are like just one of the best HR professionals mm. out there. And um, I think that we can all benefit from some of your HR, the skills that you have perfected as an HR leader. Yes. I think those skill sets need to be adopted by some of us safety in EHS It's huge. It is huge.
3: Well, and and here's what I'll say. Thank you for that compliment. But here's what I'll also say, because I don't always get it right. And when we don't get it right, we have to be willing to acknowledge it, Mm -hmm. own it, fix it, and make a plan to try to do it better the next time. Because we don't all get it right all the time. But it's that acknowledgement that you see people trying. Mm -hmm.
1: So what what are you doing? Reading Dale Carnegie's book and quoting it for (laughs) us? here's another principle. If you're wrong, admit it Mm -hmm. quickly, emphatically. Mm -hmm. And people have such a greater respect for us. Mm -hmm. Yep. When we Mm -hmm. do that, they say, well, he's real, she's real. Mm -hmm. And that our vulnerability will open it up to other people so I can relate to that. So really, what we're hearing here is that whether you're in HR or whether you're in safety, It is really the element of leadership Mm -hmm. that we're talking about here. You know, leadership comes in a lot of ways, but let all the safety professionals, all the HR leaders realize they are leaders. What is it that helps us lead better in safety, HR, just maybe some ideals, some traits that you might say we ought to think about?
3: You know, one thing I would say that's necessary is a willingness to listen, first and foremost. You gotta understand what the people are dealing with and what they
1: need. I don't tell them how they're thinking and I don't tell them just do this and see you later, bye. Well, you certainly could try that. (laughs) How's that working for you, huh? How's that working?
3: (laughs) You could certainly try that. But I think part of how you build that trust and that coalition and create safe spaces for people is they got to know that you're willing to listen. Mm. If every time you come to me, I either already think I have a solution for you or I know the best answer, I'm going to stop coming.
2: What kind of guidance would you give some of these young, early safety EHS professionals, not necessarily from a tactical and this is the function and expertise, but to help them be successful in moving the needle, being resolution driven. What is some of the specific guidance you can give some some young EHS professionals?
3: I think they have to first understand the organization that they're working in and the mission of that organization. And everything, we do have transferable skills. There are things we're going to bring from whatever the employer that we used to be at into the new job, but everything's not going to transfer in the same way. Mm -hmm. And just because it worked there, don't think you're going to force fit it in the new place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just not. And I think they have to be able to identify who are going to be some of the key stakeholders. So you got to get in there and you got to observe a little bit first. Who are going to be some of my key stakeholders? Who do I want to try to build relationships with? Because there are going to be things that you see publicly that you just know, but there's this other little bit of information that you're going to need. How do I play this game? Because every organization has a little bit of politics. So you got to know who the stakeholders are here. And then you've got to understand What has worked in the past? What have we tried here? And what are we trying to get to? Once you know what we're trying to get to and you know who your stakeholders are, you can start creating a little roadmap for us to get there together. So you gotta be willing to come in and listen and learn a little bit Mm -hmm. before you go rolling out all your grand plans, Mm -hmm. because you wanna make sure it's aligned.
1: It sounds like you've really learned how to build bridges and connections with other key people
3: relationships, I would tell you that I'm a relational and a servant leader. Mm. Relationships matter to me. Mm. And I can't get anything done if I don't have relationships with people. Absolutely nothing. Now, with that, you have to be willing to to know that you become the person that people come to you for things that have nothing to do with you. Because they've seen that you'll partner and they see that you know who the right people are for Mm. things. And you got to be willing to balance that too. But if you don't have relationships, none of us are going to get anything done. EHS isn't, and HR certainly is not. Yes. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, you cannot ask for a hand until you earn the heart of a person. Mm. That's certainly what, what you've been very practical about doing.
3: No matter what organization we're working for, it's about the people.
1: I heard years ago, I had a boss that said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I can remember that because it's real <laughs> repetitive, right? But it's like if we realize the main thing is the humans, mm-hmm. the people, yep, mm-hmm. then we work yep. everything else out.
2: I just think that this is just so insightful the The partnership between it 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 just validated so much of my suspicion of the the critical partnership between human resources. Mm and EHS. And sometimes I think there is a perception from our stakeholders that neither is needed. Both are in mm-hmm. the way, right? Both. Oh my God, here's these EHS people. Oh my <laughs> oh, God. Oh, those, those HR people hey, oh, trying to HR run parties. And- right, right, right. Yes. They're, they're both in the way. But I think when you're doing good, impactful work and you keep the people as the focus, then the organization understands the value of human resources and the value Mm. of of health and safety. Absolutely.
3: I say I am a positive disruptor. Mm. There
2: you go.
3: My goal is to look at what's been going on. If it makes sense and we should still be doing it, let's keep doing it. But if there are opportunity opportunities for us to do it differently and make positive impact, we should be willing to look at that.
1: Well, Montrese, thank you for sharing your story today. And uh, we often say in the Carnegie world, the story teaches. And so you've helped Mm -hmm. teach Mm -hmm. and remind all of us of some directions we can go to be a difference maker with the people we're involved with around us. So thank you so much.
3: Thank both of you for the time and the opportunity. And you guys keep doing the great work that you're doing.
1: Montrese brought that intriguing combination of safety and HR. One thing she said that really stood out about how she learned about making people feel like they have importance, they have value, and they sense that as a profession she is interested in them, makes them feel important. That's big time.
2: And I think that's all we want at the end of the day.
1: But when they see we mean that, that then opens up the opportunity for them to start to listen to hear and to have discussions with how we can make things better and safer for them.
2: I see HR and EHS as spouses. You know, it's it's really true partnership. And when you have true partnership, you kind of play off of each other. And I think that successful organizations, and when I say successful, I mean the employee population is seeing the organization as them being valued. So when you're looking at the top 100 best companies to work for and you're looking at how that's measured, it's measured by those two partners, HR and, and, and safety, really being included and incorporated into the fabric of the organization.
1: So what we just heard is the great importance of HR and safety looking at their potential role of working together because what we're really aiming for in the Big Safety Challenge is helping people know this is not just a program. This is for you because you as an employee are important.
0: Thanks for listening to My Big Safety Challenge, a podcast produced in partnership by Dale Carnegie and BCSP with your hosts, Dale Carnegie Master Trainer Merle Heckman and Tiffany Felix, Senior Vice President of Global Environmental Health and Safety for Paramount Global. Executive produced by Charlie Eltringham. Supervising producer, Michael Escobedo. Audio engineering and editing from Michael Escobedo and Giachi Liu. Editorial support from Tyson Matthews. Consulting producers are Colin Brown and Mark Sullivan. To have new episodes delivered directly to you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. If you would like to share your story of a safety leadership challenge you faced, email us at info at See you next time.
1: Hey, listeners. This is Merle Heckman, host of My Big Safety Challenge podcast. I imagine that if you're listening to this podcast, then you have some sort of safety responsibility in your job. Maybe you're a seasoned safety pro leading EHS programs, or maybe you're in HR and safety is one of the many responsibilities you have. No matter what your situation is, you are looking for ways to be a better leader. Well, I'd like to tell you an opportunity that's available from Dale Carnegie and BCSP. We've put together a leadership course just for safety professionals. We've taken the Dale Carnegie course and all its principles and weaved in the whole safety world to help you as a safety professional to have more influence. In the course, you will learn how to properly connect with other people and then build upon that with the ability to have collaboration creating an atmosphere where people feel like it's safe emotionally to work together and then allow you to learn how to lead and guide people who make mistakes, who want to do well, gives you the chance to know how to guide them with so much more. If you're interested, please click the link in the episode description or visit MyBigSafetyChallenge.com. And look for the BCSP and the Dale Carnegie course link at the bottom of the page. We'd love to see you be a part to benefit your organization.